We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place exclusive interviews with players coaches and team executives streaming live and always available on demand stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the odyssey app this is black history month albeit the shortest month of the year but for some people promoting african-american heritage is a year-round mission and it reaches not just through the black community but well beyond it This weekend, we're going to look at a perfect example, historic Pullman. Hello, I'm political editor Craig Delamore, and this is At Issue. The Pullman community is on Chicago's far south side, and I'm sometimes a little amazed at how much history is encompassed in that area. It's architectural history, it's African-American history, it's labor history, it's industrial history, and more. And my guest this weekend is a man who can put it all together for us about a part of the city that I think is starting to get the attention it deserves. David Peterson, Jr. is the president and executive director of the National A. Philip Randolph Pullman Porter Museum. I'll let him tell you how that got started. It's a family affair. But under President Barack Obama, the area became a national park. So we're going to talk about the past and the future of Pullman. Between the need for social distancing and all the snow that fell before we did this interview, having the conversation via Zoom conferencing seems like a wise choice. And so that's what we're doing. And uh, David Peterson, thank you very much for joining me. Well, and thank you for having me. I appreciate your time and your willingness to give us a platform to talk about the great things we're doing in Pullman. Well, I am happy to do that. And before we even get to the museum, let's talk about Pullman itself. I don't think I'm exaggerating to say there's just a whole lot of history there. Uh, even the existence of the community was historic, right? It, it was supposed to be a utopia. Sure, sure. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, uh, founded by uh, business tycoon, uh, George Pullman, who actually moved here as a um, an, an architect uh, slash real estate guy. Um, you know, he had a technology that gave people the capacity to move buildings um, and like built, put them on a jack, if you will. And uh, they, they basically helped create the first sewage lines here. So he was working for um, a very, very uh, influential architect from New York, one of his mentee. And he actually just came here and wound up staying here. Uh, as he got here, he stumbled upon this land a little uh, west of uh, Lake Calumet River. And uh, Lake Calumet, and um, you know, he decided to take the clay from Lake Calumet and build his own town, uh, the historic district of Pullman. So moving fast forward, uh, according to the U.S. Department of Interior, uh, Pullman is from 103rd in Cottage Grove all the way to 115th in Cottage Grove, and then uh, westbound all the way to the Bishop Porter Expressway. So that is the historic district boundary of Pullman. And ever since 2015, uh, we are now designated as Chicago's first and only National Park Service site. 
that has pretty much changed the trajectory of the entire neighborhood. Um, we originally slated for it to be a national park, quote unquote, if you will. Uh, we had bipartisan legislation um, kind of you know, leading towards that. But uh, President Barack Obama came in actually right around when Rahm Emanuel was running for mayor and kind of fast-tracked it and signed an executive order making it a national monument under the National Park Service. So we're not technically a park yet. Uh, we still have the potential to be. Mm. Well, now, I, I want to talk a little bit about why Pullman was created, because that comes into a lot of the history uh, that's represented in the museum that you had, uh, that it was really designed, well, I, I guess, for factory workers and, and a real way to, uh, to build a, an ideal environment for those workers. Am I right? Yeah, absolutely. But point of fact, I want to mention that um, in the Pullman National Monument, we're a, a, a partner and a member of a collective of historians. Uh, so in Pullman, we have somewhat of a buffet of history. Uh, we have architecture, we have labor history, we have all these different things, and all of our partners are quite competent in their areas of expertise. Uh, our role and in inclusion to the whole Pullman National Monument is the story of Black labor history. Uh, the influence of the Pullman porters and the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, dining car waiters and mates, uh, and the Pullman firemen, some of the Pullman uh, firemen who were black. Uh, some of our partners, the Historic Pullman Foundation, uh, Bielenberg House, uh, State Historic Site, uh, Hotel Florence, uh, and of course the National Park Service all collectively tell a lot of those stories in great detail. So in terms of you know great detail, I would always advise people to go to those wonderful websites of you know, the Pullman National Monument, and the Stuart Pullman Foundation. And they give you the foundation of, you know, why Pullman is what it is, how it came to be. But that labor history is, is so much a history of the labor movement and uh, African-American history. Um, and this all revolves around the man for whom the, your museum is named, A. Philip Randolph. So can you tell me a little bit about, about A. Philip Randolph or I guess uh, Asa Philip Randolph would be his full name. And, and sure. tell me a little bit about the role he played in this group of workers who were uh, working on the trains at the time, the Pullman porters. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, we, we are so passionate about this story because our founder, Dr. Lynn Hughes, decided that she wanted to take the initiative to tell the story, uh, February of 1995, due to the fact that the story in its entirety was not being told in the Monument District. Um, so for the last 25 years, we've been the first and only Black Labor History Museum in the world that exclusively tells the story. And the difference between the way that we tell the story and the way that everyone else tells the story is, most people tell the story of Pullman porters, you know, as if they were a piece of machinery. Um, you know, just, you know, just an item for people to kind of look at. However, what we do is we humanize them by bringing to the forefront the story of the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, Dining Car Waiters, and Maids. And that was, once again, America's first union to receive a charter on the American Confederation of Labor due to the leadership of Asa Philip Randolph. Asa Philip Randolph, uh, born in uh, Fort Lauderdale, I mean, not Fort Lauderdale, um, Jacksonville, Florida, and actually you know, went to school. And then he wound up moving to New Harlem, New York, where he became a a magazine publisher of the, uh, the Messenger. The Messenger gave him an international voice of which many people took a liking to his words because he was speaking about economics way before we were even talking about civil rights. 
he understood that the forefront was giving you the opportunity to provide for yourself and maintain your own uh, destiny, if you will. That uh, newspaper caught the attention of many Pullman porters in Chicago because he often wrote about them and empathized with their struggle in order to be accepted and you know, build their own union. Um, so he was literally drafted uh, by the Pullman porters to come lead them. You know, They wanted someone who they could find who was not bullied into silence. Uh, and, and could not be bullied into silence with the threat of losing their job. So they needed someone who was not only not from Chicago, but not a Pullman porter himself. He did take um, he did take a ride as a Pullman porter on, in disguise for a day, and after that day, decided I absolutely will come help you guys fight. You know, so it was people like Milton Webster, who was the boots on the ground Chicago native, who actually worked directly with the uh, Brotherhood because he himself was a porter. Uh, that gave A. Philip Randolph the muscle, if you will, that he needed in order to organize effectively and impactfully. And and this was really one of the first, if not the first, uh, predominantly African-American, predominantly Black uh, unions. And and as you mentioned, this, these were people who had problems being accepted as equal or, or, or on the par with other workers for the railroad and being taken seriously uh, for the issues that they had, right? Oh, yeah, surely. You know, there were there were other attempts to unionize. Um, and some people even mocked A. Philip Randolph because he, he attempted to organize a few other unions, you know, of which they were not successful. So, of course, they wouldn't be recognized as the first union to receive a charter under the American Federation of Labor, but there were, were other attempts. And even the Pullman Company actually tried to compose their own union for the porters, which was simply, simply just a way of them self-containing, uh, you know, the membership themselves. And it wasn't until President, uh, the President uh, Roosevelt actually signed an executive order giving people the opportunity to choose their own unions that they then were able to, you know, kind of form themselves. Because prior to that, it was pretty much illegal for them to even be meeting. Um, you know, and that and that's a that's a very important key because they actually formed their union in 1925, but didn't receive their charter until 37. So it took them a good 12 years just to even you know clandestinely organize and become accepted. Mm. And this was. Can you talk a little bit about how this folded into uh, the air? I mean, were these people living in the area? Were they living in Pullman at in those in the Pullman houses? Sure. Well, so so when Pullman was founded, you know, in the 1800s, um, there were pretty much not any any uh, African Americans. There was, it was basically Southern Eastern European immigrants who lived there. Um, there was a family from Virginia that moved in in the late 1800s, a black family from Virginia who was a craftsman, and he, you know, was made aware of the opportunities that Pullman was providing by being one of the first employers of African Americans. Uh, you know, as Pullman Porter's this man being a laborman, he uh, actually found his way there. But he was one of, if not only, if I'm not mistaken, uh, the only family living there, but the, the Pullman Porters themselves majority lived in a Bronzeville community. And some lived a little further south, um, Blue Island area, uh, but they did not actually physically live in Pullman. And then, of course, after Plessy versus Ferguson came and that changed the entire landscape of the country, uh, surely, you know, there weren't going to be, um, there wasn't going to be a, a chocolate city vibe <laughs> on the far south side of Chicago. <laughs> but, you know, by the grace of God, you know, in the late 60s, things changed tremendously in, in, in the neighborhood. Um, so now, you know, we have a, a very, very large population of African-Americans over there. Um, 
Pullman is broken up into two different census tracts, um, northern and southern, uh, 5002, 5003. So 5003, which is northern Pullman, where the wheelworks factory is, uh, where the museum is, uh, where most of the industrial development is. We um, are about 96 to 98% Black. Um, the southern end of Pullman, which is uh, 5003, is um, about 40 to 50% White. Um, and so it's a very, it's a little more integrated uh, than, than the northern half, which is once again predominantly black. But it just shows you how big of a difference a census tract can make. Indeed. Um, before we leave uh, A. Philip Randolph entirely, I think we should also point out that uh, you know, you mentioned things you know began to change in Pullman or, or were changing in Pullman by the late '60s. But A. Philip Randolph was actually significant in the civil rights movement as well, right? Well, absolutely. You know, it was his organizing style uh, that that empowered the Pullman porters, well, the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, to to know and understand the the power they had behind organizing. You know. After they received their after they received their charter in thirty seven, they had done something that had never been done before. So it was at that very moment that they realized the power of organizing and how influential and impactful it could be. They immediately went into action. Nineteen forty one, by you know, uh, basically forcing a meeting with the president. A. Philip Randolph uh, during his time uh, was, was very. Uh, Eleanor Roosevelt was very fond of him and what it was he was fighting for. And ironically, she had been taking some. Uh, president's speaking engagements due to him being sick and um you know she had an opportunity to hear a philip randolph speak and then said you know i think you need to hear this talking to her husband and they were able to meet where he um tried to convince a philip randolph to not do what he was threatening to do which was call a march on washington you know because of the discriminatory practices going on in the armed forces and a lot of these people were, were, were complaining to them because they now saw that they were a powerhouse you know, so he, you know, he went to meet with the president and the president offered to give him some other outs, jobs, a little money or whatever it might be in order to not do this organizing effort. And he said, surely we cannot do this. I've already mobilized people across the nation. If, if we don't get what we want, we're, mo we're ready to go. Uh, so it was at that time, President Roosevelt signed Executive Order 8802, which banned all discriminatory practices in the armed forces and work-related fields. Uh, so that was actually the foundation of what we like to know as today, the March on Washington. They actually shelved it at that point because there was no need to go beyond the mark. Uh, but in 1963, they brought it back and there was no turning back. But in between that time, uh, a, f a former Pullman porter named E.D. Named e. Nixon, uh, he was the local representative of the union in Montgomery, Alabama. Uh, he's also the local president of the NAACP in Montgomery, Alabama, and his secretary was Rosa Parks. So surely when she was arrested, he called his president, A. Philip Randolph, and A. Philip Randolph gave him a list of names uh, of businessmen in their network to call and support their efforts. So he called these people. They were able to raise $92,000 on their phone bank. And that's how they bailed Rosa Parks out of jail. And that's how they were able to fund the bus boycott. So they had no pastors in that time period willing to be brave enough to, uh, you know, take on that fight. You know, everyone was pretty much scared of the, of the retaliatory actions that could potentially come. And they found a young, brave-hearted young man by the name of Martin Luther King Jr. who said, I'd love to do it. Uh, he did it. And there was the beginning of, of a, a mentor to mentee relationship formed between A. Philip Randolph and Martin Luther King. Um, it was a little bit after that where they had this secret meeting in Miami where they decided he would be the gentleman to take on, you know, 
the, the star role of what we now know as the March on Washington and the rest is history. Amen. Well, you are listening to News Radio 780's At Issue. I'm Craig Delamore. We're talking about the Pullman community, its history and its future. My guest is David Peterson, Jr., President and Executive Director of the National A. Philip Randolph Pullman Porter Museum. And now I want to turn to that museum. And you mentioned uh, that it was uh, uh, started by uh, Dr. Lynn Hughes. And uh, I, I had said at the top that this was a uh, a family, uh, a family affair. Uh, that is your mother, correct? Uh, yes, it is. I have the privilege of being the son, uh, the only son of Dr. Dwayne Hughes. <laughs> well, and let's talk about let's talk about her and and what got her even interested in the history of that neighborhood. In fact, how did y'all even end up there? Well, as um, a former entertainer herself. Dr. Hughes um, was actually born into a, a household of entrepreneurship. Um, you know, her father was an immigrant, Afro-Cuban uh, Afro from Cuba, came over as an immigrant. Uh, her mother's um, half Jewish and half Native American. Uh, so, you know, there was a, there was a, a, a different composition of things in, in, in our family. Uh, prior to that time, so growing up in Cincinnati, Ohio, she became, um, you know, a second-generation entrepreneur. You know, our, our, our my grandparents had um, a place kind of like Gladys's here in Chicago, a soul food restaurant. Uh, you know, she was the oldest girl, and she had older brothers, but you know, who would leave her at home, but so that she automatically became in charge at home. <laughs> so, you know, she became a singer at the age of fourteen, and began be, began to travel the world. Uh, eventually that led her to broadcasting uh, media school in, uh, in Milwaukee, where she actually had the pleasure and honor of helping produce Prince's first uh, production commercial. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. So um, that, that later then led her uh, to Chicago, where she, um, you know, kind of finished up her singing career here very early. And, um, you know, she met my father and the rest is history. Um, so after, um, you know, recently, after being a recently divorced uh, single mom, she decided to, you know, do what she had instinctively learned to do uh, from mitochondria DNA, you know, from watching my, my uncles and my, my grandfather, uh, and they were in the construction world. So naturally, she knew about, you know, flipping houses, building them construction, getting the crew the whole nine. And she instinctively went to that, went to Pullman, where she had heard the community had bottomed out. And those are the best places to um, invest in real estate. She heard that on a, a Dempsey Travis uh, show that was on. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. So uh, as you can hear, I've heard this story, you know, a million times since I've been a kid. So I know it <laughs> verbatim. But, but I've never heard it from this perspective. So uh, you, you're, <laughs> and, and having, having known Den Dempsey Travis, uh, <laughs> it's, it's nice to hear how that, yeah. uh, how that all came yeah, he, together. He definitely was influential in that. So when she, she got to Pullman, she bought uh, some properties and took a tour, you know, just being a neighborhood speculator because we originally were living in the Hyde Park area. We, we originally Chatham, uh, then Hyde Park, and then um, we moved out to Pullman. And uh, she took a tour and she asked the people leading the tour in Pullman, um, well, what inclusion do people that look like me have in this whole story? And she said everyone was so quiet. It, it, they came back from what seemed like an eternity and said, I think they worked on the trains. And then everybody was just kind of looking like, well, why did you ask that question? <laughs> you know, so 
she said, okay, well, let me just shut up and I'll just do my own research. Um, she went to Wendell Smith Library where she got a, a small children's book named The Long Hard Journey. And um, that basically, that book made her weep, uh, made her made her sad that, you know, this type of stuff was going on during her lifetime and she had no idea of it. And uh, she just decided um, randomly in the middle of the night <laughs> from a voice of God, I'm going to start a museum. And she said she laughed herself because it just came to her in the middle of the night while she was laying in the bed alone. And she just woke up in the middle of the night, said to herself, I'm going to start a museum. And uh, the rest is history. So, you know, 1995, once again, uh, the National A. Philip Randolph Pullman Porter Museum was founded. America's first and only Black Labor History Museum to date that exclusively honors these contributions. And an institution like that helps, I think, drive a community. Uh, and so talk about what has happened in Pullman and what is happening. We, you, we talked a little bit earlier about the, uh, the designation as a national monument, but uh, there's a lot that's gone into that and, and the, the drive to get to where you are now. Yeah, well, I mean, we, we are... What, what we'd like to call the face of and global, global ambassadors of a concept called cultural economic development, you know, which gives us the capacity and the opportunity to benefit directly socially and economically from our own history, heritage, and culture, all centered around, you know, entrepreneurial properties, uh, but it's based with, with culture. So we like to look at ourselves as uh, cultural bodyguards, if you will in the neighborhood. We're helping carve out a cultural identity that is centered around dignity, respect, uh, and integrity. You know, we're, 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 we, we take pride in being and having the autonomy to tell the story from our perspective because therefore it, it's not watered down, it's not diluted, it's raw and it's historically accurate. Um, you know, and, and we have a proof of concept of doing that once again for 25 years without being dependent on city, state, or federal funds. Um, it's important that the story is told this way because once again, we use it as a roadmap for social development. We're training our community on tourism, this trillion dollar industry that has several opportunities for people to, to get jobs in hospitality and tourism, uh, particularly low income to moderate income uh, individuals with um, you know, not the same educational opportunities as everyone else. So with that being said, you know, the museum is so unique because we're the only ones who kind of operate on this style. Uh, and now we're at the point now where we're, we're kind of, you know, blossoming. But, but what happened is, you know, because we, we kind of fine tune this niche, we, we draw in international traffic. And when director John Jarvis, who's the old director of the National Park Service, came to Chicago, what he said uh, to a group of people, uh, partners in Pullman, you know, commissioning him to, to designate us as a national park site was we have all of these great things, but we don't have as the African-American labor history story. And if you guys can present that to me or show me that, then, you know, surely, you know, we can talk about it. So Lynn Hughes and that group literally put up her hands like a T and say, Hey, time out. Okay. Hey, what about me? It's my turn now to, to, to do my presentation. Uh, he came to the museum. He walks through in verbatim. He said, no, this is what I'm talking about. You know, he went up to our second floor, sat down with Dr. Hughes and said, if you will trust us, we'll come here and we'll help you. You know, we want to work with you. We're not trying to come in and take over your story set. We want to come here and work with you in order to tell this story on a grander stage. And that was the beginning of what we like to call a very, very powerful, impactful partnership that is 
literally at the cusp of going to the next level now because on Labor Day, we'll have our grand opening of the factory site, which will be the collective uh, the, the collective visitor center for the National Park Service. We're working closely with our partners in order to make that happen while simultaneously working on the expansion plan of the museum. So the museum will have much more to offer, a bigger space, uh, more exhibits, stronger and more impactful partners uh, simultaneously while the factory site is opening, which will be the visitor center for the entire National Park District. So we're, we're just beyond excited of, of what this last 25 years has uh, brought us. And as we're, we're approaching our 26th birthday, which is coming up February 25th, we're excited about all the new developments that's happening. Uh, I, I can imagine, but the exhibits are closed right now, I assume. They, they're still that because of COVID. Um, what kind of a, what's that birthday going to be like? Well, it, it'll be it'll be just fine. Um, you know, it'll definitely be socially distanced, if you will. We're copying it by, you know, by uh, Labor Day 21. You know, we'll be in a position where people can safely come out and then, you know, to, to, um, to our grand opening. Uh, in terms of the museum, what are we doing? Uh, we, we've adapted. You know, we've, we've learned to spin on a dime as we've been doing for the last 25 years. It's a lot when you're not necessarily politically connected. You don't have big endowment funds and you're not funded by city, state or federal funds. It's, it's a lot, you know, having to, to, to weather the storm of, of just being a, a, a low uh, nonprofit organization, 501c3, of course. But, you know, it's, um, it's, it's definitely a task. And in that being a task, what happens is your level of resilience uh, is increased because of the things that you're forced to deal with. So we've just adapted with the times. We have a virtual tour uh, on our website. We have um, a traveling exhibit and these things have helped us kind of, you know, go through the time. We've also still been doing community programming, things of that nature. You know, we, we still, because where we are in our community, we're forced to do more with less. So, you know, although we're a cultural institution and not a constituency organization, community organization or anything like that, we're forced to create and empower partners around us in order to do things. So we have um, a community development corporation who's our partner organization, if you will, birthed out of the same vision, Randolph's Dream Community Development Corporation. We do a lot of the community oriented things. So we'll have, um, you know, holiday giveaways, community giveaways, food giveaways. Um, we were giving away masks. Uh, for people in the community, um, donated by the mayor's office, um, different food giveaways. And we have financial literacy classes. Um, you know, our youth and young adult division of the museum, Museum 44, which was named after the 44th president, is a, a youth jobs program. So we work with uh, After School Matters, One Summer Chicago, and we provide jobs for, for youth in the community. But also this year, we'll, uh, partnering with the Department of Human Services, we were able to offer temporary job uh, options for adults who were just trying to get some job experience. So they were able to come. So even though the museum was technically set, shut down for general admission, we're still able to empower our community and teach people about the importance and the impact of tourism. And, you know, we do prearrange things, just, you know, once again, socially distanced, you know, abiding by all CDC guidelines. I would be remiss if I uh, didn't give you an opportunity to tell people where they can find uh, the online programming that you're doing now. So please uh, let, let, let us know. Sure, sure. Uh, PullmanPorterMuseum.com. Uh, very simple. You could just go there and you'll see um, the plethora of different things we have to offer. <laughs> <laughs> and now, you know, let me make sure I'm clear. Uh, Labor Day will be the, the official grand opening. That's for the, for the monument itself or well, well, uh, give well, me no, a no, sense. The, the, 
the the factory site the monument is a monument district it's not just right. one specific building right um so, so yeah it's um it, it'll be labor day where we have an, uh, the factory uh grand open but now when will the museum itself be or do you know yet when the museum itself will be able to open and invite people inside its doors well as of right now, um, we're, we're on our regular season. We usually close down for uh, annually. We close down during the winter season anyway. And we don't open up until uh, April. Um, so we'll definitely be having a, a, a major season opener, if you will. So stay tuned for that. It's going to be something a little different than we usually do. Uh, so we're going to be doing that in April. Uh, more, more than likely around uh, April Randolph's birthday, which is April 15th. Well, that would make that would certainly make sense, and <laughs> I, and I want to thank you very much for taking the time uh, and and the patience to tell us about this history that we don't hear often enough, and I hope uh, hope to be able to see uh, some of that uh, for myself uh, this year as you uh, reopen. So that is David Peterson. He is the head of the A. Philip Randolph Pullman Porter Museum. And thank you very much for spending the time with us. Uh, thank you so much for having me. Uh, to our listeners, if you'd like a copy of this program or to hear it again, please visit our website at wbbmnewsradio.com. There should be a link at the bottom of the homepage. You can also find our podcasts on radio.com. We'll be back next week with another edition of At Issue, and I hope you'll be listening. Until then, I'm Craig Delamore, News Radio 780 and 105.9 FM. We really need new phones. T Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. Oh, 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 Protect your vehicle's engine with a full synthetic oil change and save with Mobile One at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Purchase five quarts of Mobile One full synthetic motor oil and receive a $10 O'Reilly gift card after rebate. See store for details. With your Mobile One purchase, you'll also receive two times points during Old Rewards Bonus Points Month at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts.